Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Tom. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at Beyond the Headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. As the native country of its creator, James Naismith, and the location of the very first NBA game in 1946, Canada has deep roots in basketball. And since the first game of the Toronto Raptors in 1995, to their triumphant Game 7 buzzer-beating win against the Philadelphia 76ers in their 2019 championship run, Canadian basketball fandom is at an all-time high. From driveway basketball nets to Jurassic Park, the Raptors have helped to shape the identity of Toronto and attracted a global fan base. We the North has now become a prominent phrase among Canadians and is also a multicultural rallying cry. The sheer diversity of Toronto shines through in this regard, with fans from all walks of life across every race, religion, and culture. Today we hope to explore this idea in more depth and take a closer look at the multicultural identity of the Toronto Raptors fan base and the growing popularity of basketball across Canada. We also go further and talk about the global reach of basketball, influenced in many parts by the Raptors' success, and discuss where and how the game is expanding, building new bridges, and becoming more equitable. We speak with two journalists today, covering the Raptors and basketball at large, to talk about this unique intersection between sport, culture, diversity, globalization, and equality. And although, as Canadians, we may be divided on certain issues and hold our own beliefs and opinions, there is one thing we can all agree on. We, the North. Our first guest today is Alex Wong, a writer, author, and content producer based in Toronto. His work has appeared in outlets including GQ, The New York Times, Slam Magazine, and Complex. And along with Will Liu, he hosts the Raptors show for Sportsnet. Alex's latest book, Cover Story, takes a behind-the-scenes look at the most iconic basketball-related magazine covers from 1984 to 2003. Alex, it's great to speak to you today. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's always good to talk to students, um, you know, because as a 37-year-old, you know, the university days for myself are, are many years ago. So it's always great to feel old. So I'm glad to be, be chatting with you, Tom. <laughs> Let's start by talking about your own story. How did you become a basketball fan and how did that transcend into your current career in journalism? Yeah, for sure. You know, so I grew up with my family. Um, I have an older sister in Hong Kong. And when I was the age of eight, this would have been in 1992. Um, I still remember I was in my apartment in Hong Kong playing a, a Sega Genesis game. 
actually the game specifically was called Alex Kidd in Miracle World. And I know this because my dad walked in and basically told me that we were moving to a new country and he was filling out a form for elementary school. And at the time, obviously we had our Chinese name and he said, do you want to pick an English name? And because I was playing that video game, I picked the name Alex. So that's where I got my name from. And we immigrated here. And, you know, when I first came here, I, I discovered immediately that this was a hockey town, right? Like when I went to school, like when I started learning English and like meeting new friends, everybody wanted to talk about hockey. Everybody wanted to talk about the Toronto Maple Leafs. And then when you're growing up in, say, like a grade seven, grade eight environment, everybody's playing hockey um, or at least a majority of your class. Basketball for me, it was a sport that I had followed growing up, even in Hong Kong, because, you know, at the time, Michael Jordan and the Bulls were huge. And, you know, my, my first favorite teams um, would have been uh, Shaquille O'Neal, Penny Hardaway, the Orlando Magic. I remember that was the first jersey that I got when I first moved here was uh, a Shaquille O'Neal um, Orlando Magic jersey. And, you know, getting into basketball, one of the most important things for me was just my parents uh, getting a hoop and putting it in, in my driveway. Like I remember uh, practicing like corner threes or like lowering the rim and then trying to like replicate dunks that I saw. And then I eventually, you know, obviously started watching basketball when the Raptors came here, became a huge fan during that 95, 96 first season, you know, took them on as, as, as my team. And then I also played a lot of basketball um, in, in grade seven and grade eight and grade nine. Like I was on the school team and those are still some of my favorite memories. Um, skipping a bit ahead, you know, I ended up going to school at U of T, uh, Scarborough uh, in the management program and graduated with a BBA and worked as a, a chartered accountant. Um, you know, I got my CPA license and worked at Ernst & Young. That was my first job out of school and eventually started spending the first decade, I would say, of my post-university life working in the accounting and finance field. And it just reached a point for me about 10 years ago where I realized that that just wasn't for me. You know, I always had an interest in sports, specifically basketball, always had an interest in writing as well. And at the time, like, it was the first time really in my 20s where I realized, hey, like, these can not just be interests, like, like this could be something that you could pursue as a career. Uh, so I, I basically made a huge uh, career shift. Um, actually moved to New York for a little bit. And, and that's when I started my freelance writing career and then moved back here to Toronto in, in 2016. And so for the past decade or so, like I've been in the NBA and uh, the Raptors space as well as a writer, podcaster, and kind of all kinds of different roles. So thanks a lot for that. And I think it's a good segue into our first question about the fan base of the Raptors. There's been a lot of discussion and writing surrounding level of diversity among Raptors fans. Why do you think this has happened and has this multicultural fan base always been the case for the Raptors? Yeah, you know, I think it's a very simple answer to that. I think if you just look at the demographic and the makeup of the city of Toronto, you know, for me personally, when I think about growing up, I grew up in Markham. And I remember I was going to school at the time where there was a huge influx of immigrants coming from Hong Kong, like myself, and from China, uh, because there was a lot of uncertainty over, you know, the British handover in Hong Kong. And so my parents made the decision for us to come here and, and try to just have a new life. And, you know, they thought that the educational system here and, and many other things would be beneficial to our day-to-day -day lives. And I remember going to school, you know, I, I mentioned earlier about 
you know, a lot of the kids were, were getting into hockey. Like, if you want to break that down at demographic, like a lot of them were white kids and a lot of them were richer. Like, because when you talk about hockey, like you need resources, right? Like you need to be paying for, for equipment. You need to be paying to go to practice, to play games. Whereas basketball to me has always struck me as um, like, I don't want to generalize, but it's more like an immigrant friendly sport. Like for me, like I remember just picking up a basketball and just playing at recess or playing at a hoop after school like the accessibility i think is just on a different level and i think in terms of basketball as a sport when you look at the different demographics that are here in toronto whether you know it's asian or like you know the indian community uh jamaican community black community like all of this when you fold them all together like all of them have huge roots in basketball like there's a lot of basketball interest that gets passed down from different generations and when you do have these different pockets of neighborhoods of immigrant kids of non-white communities eventually they're going to gravitate towards a sport like basketball more than a sport like hockey and i think when the raptors came here in 95 96 that's what they really tapped into um, and, you know, one of the things like I, I'm working on a book now uh, about the first year of the Raptors and like in a lot of conversations that I've had, like these are the conversations that have come up in the different communities. It's that when the Raptors came here, we finally felt seen for the first time, like when the Raptors, uh, you know, initiated a bunch of like community programs, including building new courts or, you know, having this Bell Raptor ball program, which is basically a basketball training camp for the younger kids, they tapped into communities that the hockey crowd or the baseball crowd didn't tap into. They went to neighborhoods in Scarborough, in Mississauga, in Brampton, places that you would never see like the Toronto Maple Leafs go into. So I think from the very beginning, since the Raptors was here, they have always recognized where that core fan base is. And because of that recognition over these past two decades plus, they've been able to continue to grow that community of immigrant fans. Yeah, that's really interesting once again. Um, another question we had about this was whether there's something inherent or unique about Toronto's identity and whether or whether it's something broader. Because for instance, it has to do more with Canada's multiculturalism, uh, then what about the Vancouver Grizzlies? Why did Vancouver's NBA franchise fold when Toronto's own team has really grown and succeeded? Do you think there are other factors to this? Yeah, you know, I would say, you know, you know, just a preface, like I feel like just because I've I've operated a lot in the Toronto space, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily say an expert. Um, about kind of what happened uh, with the Vancouver Grizzlies. But based on, you know, what I know and based on the insight and based on what I can really infer from what happened, I feel like a lot of times it's just about things that external factors that might be out of control of some of these communities. You know, when you look at Vancouver, I know they have a huge Asian community and they have a huge community of basketball fans. You know, Vancouver has deep roots in streetball um, and, and very deep roots in, in, in just different basketball, not just at the pro level. So I know there is a fan base there and there was a fan base there when, when the Vancouver Grizzlies was there. But if you can compare and contrast Toronto and Vancouver, you know, the, the Raptors were in a way more successful right away, I think, because of the way they marketed themselves to the communities and, and the way that they really forged that connection. Whereas when you think about the Grizzlies, you know, maybe someone like a Bryant Reeves comes to mind or a Sharif Abdurrahim, but they didn't have that Vince Carter moment, right? Like there wasn't that player who came and, and really put the city of Toronto on the map in terms of, you know, the, the basketball map and, and, you know, put them on a national stage and, and really kind of galvanize and bring together a fan base. So 
to me, you know, I think a lot of people forget that before Vince Carter arrived in that period after Damon Stoudemire won Rookie of the Year, you know, the franchise took a huge downturn. You know, Isaiah Thomas left the team. John Bitov Jr. sold the franchise. Damon Stoudemire requested a trade to Portland. There was a period there before Vince arrived where Toronto might not have been able to sustain a basketball franchise. And that's why you see documentaries like the Carter effect. That's why every time there's a Canadian player in the NBA, you hear them talk about watching Vince growing up. Like for me, the biggest difference between Toronto and Vancouver is having that Vince Carter player to, to really push and inspire that next generation and really bring the fan base together. I think ultimately Vancouver just never had that. And that was the biggest problem. So I'm really glad you mentioned the Carter effect there, uh, because our next question talks about the next generation in homegrown Canadian basketball. In recent years, we've seen more and more Canadian players enter the NBA, including some of them being drafted in the first round. What do you think has changed in recent years, uh, particularly after the Tractors' own 2019 championship? And what's next for Canadian basketball? Yeah, you know, I think so many things in sports is just about role modeling and just about seeing someone uh, doing something that you want to accomplish, right? You know, I think as as an Asian Canadian, like in the sports media space, I talk about this a lot when we talk about just the sports media space and being able to just see faces that look like your own or, you know, be, being able to look at someone and say, oh, I want to be that person. And I think the fact that the Raptors are here and the fact that you talk about Vince Carter and you talk about so many millions of fans like tuning in to maybe watch the Raptors for the first time in 2019 when they were making their championship run. Like I think of my own nephews, you know, they're seven and 10 now, like a few years ago, this was the first time that they got into basketball. And since then they have joined local basketball camps and they've taken an interest in the sport and they watch the Raptors more now than they did before. If you think about that example and you carry that through to the rest of the population, like there are thousands, uh, I don't know, like, I don't even know what the number is, right? Like, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, it's going to impact so many people, right? So when you look at the Vince Carter effect and what it's given birth to, and you look at the championship, and I think the other thing that people need to recognize too, is about the money and the resources that's poured into a sport, right? When, when there is that national interest and when you're seeing success, um, say, at, at the national level, you know, I, I know there's there's a lot of frustration with Team Canada, especially the men's basketball team, not having been able to qualify for the Olympic tournament. But the fact that that, that is a story in itself and the fact that there are expectations for that team, I think it shows that they've come a long way. Because, you know, when Steve Nash led the, the Team Canada team like 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago, you know, that was considered just kind of like a, a, like a miracle on ice type thing, right? Like we can't believe that Team Canada is in the Olympics and, you know, actually winning games. Now there's an expectation for Team Canada to actually be a superpower. And when you see the possibilities of being able to play at prep schools here, when you see the possibilities of Canadian players going to Division One in college in the NCAA, which was not possible if you talk to people from the 70s, from the 80s. Like you can pick out singular examples like Leo Routens, and that would be it. Uh, whereas now you look all across the board from the NBA, NCAA, and high school level, there's super, like there's talent all around. And, and when you're able to see that as, say, an eight year old kid, a 12 year old kid, a 14 year old kid, 
there's just going to be more of a path there, not just for the kids to go into, but I think for the parents to say, hey, we are able to encourage our kids to go on this path because it is not a waste of time and there is an opportunity there. So I think I think to answer your question, I think those are all the factors. So I want to talk to you about an article I wrote last May for Asian Heritage Month. You had a really great and inspiring piece that talked about the Raptors and their Chinese community and fan base. Would you mind talking more about the people you spoke for the article and what the Raptors have meant for them? Yeah, for sure. You know, so the Raptors reached out, you know, last year to ask me to write a story highlighting the Asian fan base, um, like you mentioned, for Asian Heritage Month. And, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do was just highlight people from, uh, you know, different communities, uh, from different classes and, and with different experiences with the Raptors and what it meant to them. And what I was able to do was just find so many people who told personal stories of, of what it meant to be a Raptors fan, like why it was important to have a basketball team in Toronto, whether it was them becoming a fan in 1995 or them seeing um, you know, becoming a fan and using the Raptors as a way to relate to their family members. You know, so many people shared stories of me of watching, you know, their favorite memories were watching Raptors games, you know, in the living room with their parents, you know, where otherwise they might not have spent that time together. And then, you know, one of the favorite things about that story for me was finding people who were Raptors fans in the very beginning and now sharing stories with me of them passing that fandom on to their kids. And I think it's so much about the topics that you're touching on today in terms of, you know, how how is this fandom and how is this diverse fan base being passed down? That's exactly how it's being done from the fans who were there from from the first day. You know, they might have been kids growing up going to the Sky Dome in 95. And now they're able to bring their kids to Scotiabank Arena or to experience Jurassic Park. Um, so be able to tell that story was really important to me. Um, you know, for, for all the obvious reasons. And, and I think it was just important to, you know, when you get an opportunity to maybe kind of open the eyes of, of, you know, Raptors fans to these communities that exist, because for as much as I think we celebrate, um, you know, that the diversity, you know, down to like the Raptors literally have a court where it says we, the North in every different language. And to, when we celebrate Jurassic Park, I think oftentimes we still look at, diversity and talk about it in a way where it does feel like it's a checklist item. You know what I mean? Like if, if you're, if, if you grew up the way I did or some of you did, or, you know, the immigrant fans did, you know, diversity and all this stuff is just ingrained in our day-to-day lives in the people that we interact with in the, you know, challenges and stereotypes that we face. Um, so as much as I think it's great to celebrate diversity, I never want it to feel like it, it should be a chore. You know, it should be just part of the natural fabric of when you talk about the city of Toronto and the fan base. Um, and, and I think in that regard, there's still ways to go. Um, but but in terms of writing that story, you know, I think it was just a great opportunity for me to hopefully spotlight something that maybe some of the fan base didn't know about. That's really interesting. Once again, um, I'm just going to turn it over quickly to my colleague, Abdullah, for another question. Sure. Yeah. So, so I guess um, I have a similar experience from you uh, being an immigrant and coming to this country around the time that the Raptors got started, actually. And so, um, you know, I, I absolutely relate to that. 
Um, I also, you know, I was speaking to a friend this weekend um, who was talking about, you know, how how incredible it would be if the Leafs won, uh, you know, Stanley Cup, which probably isn't going to happen in our lifetimes. But you know, um, but but I mean, uh, he, he was he was saying how much bigger the the parade would be uh, than the Raptors one was, and I really really doubt that because I think that um, you know the pull of the Raptors and the sort of diverse nature of the Raptors fan base uh, meant that that was the biggest party that the city's seen. Um, where were you for that? And uh, how was that for you? Yeah. So I was actually for the parade, like I was covering, I was working at Yahoo Sports Canada at the time and I was mm-hmm. supposed to cover the parade, but they took so long. I remember starting at around the CNE cause that's where their roots started and like about half an hour and an hour in, and then people people who are at the parade probably remember it was a really hot day that day. And about mm-hmm. half an hour in, I was like, man, they're barely moving these buses. Like, I don't think they're gonna get to Nathan Phillips Square until like whatever they ended up getting there at like 3 p.m. So yeah. I basically just covered the rest of the parade from home. Cause for people that know me, like I I wouldn't say I'm an impatient person, but I think like <laughs> I am an efficient person. So I was not as much as that was such a great moment. And it was so good, even for the bits and pieces where I was able to be part of this parade to really soak it in. Like everything just felt so surreal. Uh, I thought I made the smart choice by just watching the most of the parade from home. Uh, but, but in terms of, I think like you mentioned um, about the, the question your friend brought up about the Leafs parade, you know, that's interesting to me because the Raptors parade did bring out like obviously a huge number of people. Um, like we're talking about millions and like, I, I mean, we know that the Leafs have a, have a very high fan base, like a huge fan base. I would almost say like, that's not a fair argument because it's almost just apples and oranges because I, I think the more interesting thing to look at is like, I, I think you would have a very homogenous crowd if it was a Leafs mm-hmm. parade versus whenever we go to a Raptors game, you know, whenever they pan out to Jurassic park or when you go to a parade, or if you just see people in the city wearing Raptors jerseys, like it's from people from all walks of life, right. Of all different Mm -hmm. races and ethnicities. And I think um, as much as, you know, maybe the Leafs would have more people, but I feel like Mm -hmm. it wouldn't have that galvanizing effect in the way that a Raptors championship would. Like, I think in that, like, we should almost compare it in that way because it's, I don't think, you know, it's not comparable. Right. And and we're the only Canadian team, whereas there's seven hockey teams. So, you know. Yeah. The, 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 I mean, it, it's been well established. Like, you know, the rest of Canada hates the Leafs. I'm sure there's people <laughs> in Toronto who hates the Leafs. But, like, when you think about the Raptors championship run, and we always reference, like, the Jurassic Parks, like, Jurassic Parks, these outdoor viewing events were springing up from all across the country, right? Like, you would see them mm-hmm. being held in, like, Newfoundland, in Halifax, in Manitoba, in Vancouver. And I think that's also the effect of this Raptors team as well. And, and you know, it's, it's unfortunate to say because what happened to the Grizzlies, and I really wish there was a team there in Vancouver, but the fact that there is only one team, I think, really does create more of a cohesion across the country as well because there is that specific rooting interest and for someone who grew up a basketball fan say in winnipeg like you've never had your own basketball team but now you're able to claim the raptors as your own and i think from a raptors versus leafs perspective like the raptors definitely have an upper hand in that regard 
I just had a surreal moment last night watching the Lakers game, uh, hearing a Let's Go Raptors chant break out. And I was like, what's going on here? <laughs> it was pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, and, and, and it's such a... And it's such a normal occurrence now. Like, like, mm-hmm. like, I'm glad like that was something that struck you. But for me, it's like, it, I, I'm like used to it now. You know what I mean? Like, I'm almost mm-hmm. surprised mm-hmm. when they don't pan to the crowds and then we don't see Raptors fans on the road. Like, we saw how well traveled mm-hmm. they were during the playoffs. We, you know, we see them show up in the arenas that we expect, like say a Detroit, um, and you know mm-hmm. some of these other places. But yeah, to see them in Los Angeles to do that and all this stuff, like it is, it is that that is kind of that national and global reach. Um, of, of Raptors fans, which I think is amazing. Alex, thanks so much once again. Uh, I think our last question kind of comes full circle. So you mentioned at the start that Toronto was really a hockey town when you were growing up. Do you think this is still the case, or is Toronto becoming more and more influenced by the Raptors, the Raptors community and fan base, and the game of basketball itself? Yeah, you know, again, you know, I, I think if you were to ask me, I would kind of choose neither. You know, I, I know that's probably... You know, uh, I guess I'm kind of giving you a non-answer, but like, I think, you know, even talking earlier about like, say the Leafs versus Raptors parade, you know, for me, I don't think it's fair to have that conversation. You know, I don't think it's constructive to have that conversation because the fan bases are so different. Um, You know, certainly I know people and I'm sure, you know, people who are both fans of hockey and basketball, Um, but, but there's also uh, significantly larger, in my opinion, at least the people that I surround myself with, who are just basketball fans and who do see Toronto as a basketball fan, as, as a basketball town, and who who do see the city of Toronto as a sports town through the lens of the Raptors. But that's not the case for everybody, right? So um, I guess if you want an answer, you know, I think we're always going to have to call Toronto a hockey town. You know, I think hockey just such has such a rich history here. Uh, but I think the argument has to be made that, you know, basketball has been able to carve out its own community here. And it's a community that we see, you know, not just at games, not just at parades. Like you talk about, you know, in social media, you talk about in sports media, Um, you know, certainly I know, you know, I think we all know that, you know, diversity and, and kind of equality and then like giving people of different races, like equal opportunity in the sports media field, et cetera, et cetera, long way to go in that. But, you know, I could give you a list of 20, 30, 40, 50 writers and creatives that is in this space before I even point you to, to, to a white man. Um, and, and could you do the same if you were sitting in a press box at a Leafs game, you know, could you do the same if you're looking at the coverage of other sports? So I think, for, for me, you know, this will always be a hockey town, you know, you know, hockey, hockey will always be king here. You know, you talk to anybody from the U.S., you talk to anybody globally when they hear Toronto, you know, you know, they think about hockey. Um, but slowly now, people are starting to think about the Raptors as well. And, 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 you know, that's the power of Vince Carter. And that's the power of having Messiah Jury. And you know what? That's the power of having that championship banner at Scotiabank Arena, because when you have that, you know, it, it, it does it does kind of authenticate the experience and it does validate the fact that, hey, this basketball team isn't just, you know, hey, wasn't that team, you know, with the purple dinosaur named after, you know, the Jurassic Park movie um, and, you know, people make all the Barney jokes and stuff. It's like, no, this is a well-established franchise that is setting the standard and everything. So despite it being a hockey town, I think more and more basketball can really make a claim of having their own kind of imprint on this city. Yeah, that that whole uh, intersection of culture and 
in sport, uh, I think is absolutely more relevant when it comes to basketball than, than any other sport, you know, um, well, when, when you look at people like Drake or Navatia, you know, like you don't have these characters uh, in, in hockey, for example, the same way. So yeah, I think they, right. they, they have like a dart guy, right? Who was that dart guy? They, like put a cigarette in his mouth. Like, what is that? <laughs> that was like, that was like five years ago. I, yeah. I, I remember I remember running into that guy outside of a bar and I was like, who are, who are you? What's going on here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, you think about like, just like when you're out socially and, you know, when there's a Raptors game on, you know, at a bar, like think about the people, the strangers that you might have conversations with, like think about the makeup of those people. Like, I think that's one of the Mm -hmm. most amazing things about the city. And to be honest, like, you know, having been able to work in this sports media space and, and, you know, having connected with a lot of fans who have reached out and supported the work that I do, um, it's, it's, I always get such a kick out of just the makeup of those people as well. Right. And like hearing their mm-hmm. stories because so much of, I think what, you know, makes maybe some of my work and some of my colleagues work successful is because people see themselves in, in the way that we talk about basketball and people see themselves in the way that we share our own personal stories. You know, everyone's personal story is different, but when you think about the entry and the gateway into getting introduced to basketball, especially here in Toronto, I think many people have very similar stories. And, and when, when these people think back to the people who impacted them and got them into the sport of basketball, like it is a very diverse mix of, of individuals. And, and I think those things are true across the stories of a lot of people who are Raptors fans and who are basketball fans in Toronto. And I think that's what makes, that's what makes this fan base so unique. Well, Alex, thanks again for a really interesting talk today. I think Abdul and I really had a great time speaking with you the past hour or so, and we really appreciate your time, and we've been really fa- big fans of your writing and your, and your radio show, and so thanks again for a really interesting, inspiring talk. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate it. Um, you know, I feel like I, great, I gave some great answers, so you guys are in good hands. Yeah, you did. You did, though. No, very, very, no, like, very engrossing. It was very good. Thank you. Once again, that was Alex Wong. Alex's latest book, Cover Story, is out now. Welcome back to Beyond the Headlines. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at us at BYOND underscore headlines. Next up is Abdullah's interview with Oren Weisfeld, a sports journalist based in Toronto. All right. Uh, welcome to uh, Beyond the Headlines. We are here with Oren Weisfeld, a writer for uh, many different publications, but uh, specifically we're going to be talking about some of the work that you've been doing with Complex Canada. Uh, if you would like to introduce yourself, please. Yeah, hi, my name is Oren Weisfeld. I'm a freelance writer born and raised in Toronto. And right now I'm mostly covering basketball and I've always been interested in kind of the intersection of sport and politics and culture. And I think a lot of the stuff we are gonna be talking about today pertains to those interests. So pretty excited. Excellent, thank you so much. And and it's perfect for our podcast, obviously, so. Uh, really excited to have you here today. Um, so firstly, I, I guess uh, I'm really intrigued by this article that you wrote about 
uh, Giants of Africa, uh, an organization run by Masai Ujiri. Um, can you tell us about Giants of Africa and Masai Ujiri? Um, how did Giants of Africa come to fruition? Sure. So Masai Ujiri, for people who don't know, is the president of basketball operations for the Toronto Raptors. And kind of as a side project, he has a nonprofit organization called Giants of Africa. Uh, it started in 2003 when Masai was, I think, in between jobs in basketball. He had played in the States uh, in college, and then he was slowly making his way into the NBA as an unpaid scout. And during this time, him and the co-founder, Godwin Owinje, I think is how you pronounce it, they started Giants of Africa. They started in Nigeria, where Masai is from. And, you know, it started off as just a, a camp where boys at first would come and they would put them through some basketball drills and they would leave them with some equipment. And that was pretty much all it was at that time. You know, the, they say that the goal of Giants of Africa is to use basketball as a means to educate and enrich the lives of African youth. Um, but since then, it's just really blown up. It's become a huge priority of Masai Ujiri. And he uses a lot of the resources that he has from MLSE, the owners of the Raptors, and, and his resources in the NBA to, to put into this program, this non-profit. And now, it, now they're running camps in 17 African countries, boys and girls camps everywhere they go. You know, he's still one man. It's, it's, a, it's one organization with, I think, 12 I'm, I'm looking right now i think 12 people work for giants of africa so it's not big by any means but you know the majority of of the groundswell in africa and the growth is is really driven by access like more and more kids have mobile phones uh for example like nba league pass finally made its way to all african countries recently so i think more than anything kids are seeing the game for the first time they have social media they can see the highlights, they can look up to players like Giannis or Joel Embiid or Pascal Siakam and, and finally kind of envision themselves in, in a player, like see themselves represented on the biggest stage. So I think like really a, a really underrated part of the growth of basketball in Africa and, and in around the world is the access that now kids have. And another big thing that just happened this past year is the Basketball Africa League which is basically the 12 best African clubs, um, you know, now have their own league. And that's huge because it just provides like an aspiration for kids in Africa to, even if they're not going to make it to the NBA right away, they, they can look up to like, if I'm Egyptian, okay, I, I can play for the best club in Egypt. And then we can play for, for with the best clubs in all of Africa. And, you know, I, I talked to, Patrick Engelbrecht recently, who's the director of international scouting for the Raptors. He's also a coach at Giants of Africa. And he was basically saying that, like, he thinks that in the next few years, the BAL is going to be one of the best leagues in the world to find young talent because, you know, Africa is just already it's filled of athletic kids. And finally, they're they have access to basketball. And now they're getting more and more resources to develop and, and train and get better at basketball. And, and this league is really going to be one, he thinks at least, that other leagues look towards when looking for young prospects. So I think those are another couple, you know, fascinating things when it comes to the growth in Africa. You mentioned Masai just being one man, but uh, it's, it's, great, it's great to hear that there are sort of 
systemic and institutional things happening uh, that, that are leading to development of basketball players and, and sort of it leads it lends itself to sort of global development and money coming uh, over there in order to help people. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. And and Mastai is like he's all about the sponsorships, like a lot of those 100 courts that are being built are based off like who is going to, you know, help help pay for these and and where are like I know Visa was a big partner of theirs and, and a few others. But the point you made is a good one, because for Maasai, it's all about like I'm showing you how far a little investment and a little organization can go. Now he wants businesses in Africa and, and the government, local governments there to kind of meet him halfway. That's kind of the goal with these things, because he obviously knows that he'll never be able to fundamentally change the continent. But but he is showing them here's what can happen with just a little investment and a little organization and sponsorship. And the hope is that, you know, they will see this and meet him halfway and kind of continue the stuff that he's doing. So I, I guess uh, with regards to Giants of Africa, one of the big success stories coming out of Giants of Africa is Precious Achua, uh, a Nigerian player who plays for the Raptors. Um, and he sort of signifies the, the spread of basketball in Africa. Can you tell us about uh, Achua and his story and his journey to the NBA? For sure. So Precious Achua, um, part of the Kyle Lowry sign and trade when the Raptors sent Lowry to the Miami Heat. The main piece that they wanted back was Precious Achua. And part of that was because Masai Ujiri's uh, relationship with him from Giants of Africa. So yeah, Precious attended a Giants of Africa camp in Nigeria when he was in eighth grade. Um, he was one of the youngest kids to ever attend a Giants of Africa camp. And, you know, nothing crazy happened at that camp, but you know, to him, Masai at the time was like uh, a celebrity, as he is with a lot of kids in Nigeria. And, you know, Precious went to one of these camps, did some development. That was kind of that was kind of it for then. And then Precious's brother went to the United States on a basketball scholarship and basically convinced his coaches uh, in the Bronx. Hey, I have a brother back home. He's about as tall as me. He could play some basketball. Let's get him over here. And, and then eventually, you know, these guys came together and and got Precious to come over, uh, got him a student visa to come to the Bronx and, and play near his brother. And that's kind of how it all started for Precious. Like he was just a kid who, like most kids, started playing soccer, slowly transitioned to basketball because his brothers did, and then slowly followed his brothers to the United States to play basketball. And, you know, when he came over, Precious was like, nobody knew what to make of him. He was really skinny. Um, he thought he was a point guard. He had a really lack of like fundamental basketball skills because in Africa, it's really hard to find those developmental resources. Um, but yeah, slowly, like Precious just put the work in. He went to Memphis University under Penny Hardaway. Um, James Wiseman, who is a center for the Golden State Warriors, was the starting center. He had an eligibility uh, problem. So James Wiseman was basically suspended for the rest of the season. And Precious started into the starting center role. And kind of the rest is history. Like Raptors fans will definitely at times get frustrated with Precious Achua. But his story is so crazy because he's really a kid who 
a couple years ago, nobody even knew if he was going to make it in the NBA. He wasn't seen as a one and done prospect at prospect at Memphis. And all of a sudden he had this opportunity. He gets drafted by the heat in the middle of the first round. And then now he's basically the starting center for the Toronto Raptors. Um, with regards, uh, and let's, let's go back to giants of Africa here. Um, in the Giants of Africa article, Masai mentions Toronto having global goals and being a global city. What makes Toronto unique in this way? Well, I think um, Toronto is just, as we know, such a big and multicultural city. So I think it starts with that in that not not a lot of people really, like Masai sees Toronto as such a gold mine in terms of culture and not a lot of people maybe outside of Canada recognize just just how much opportunity there is here. So I think when he talks about a gold mine, he's talking about a, a lot of different things. Or when he talks about a global city, one is definitely the the sponsorship opportunities. I think that if players come here, they they don't recognize how big of a film scene there is. For example, in Toronto, you know how many Canadian companies are getting behind these basketball players and stuff like that I also think just in terms of the basketball side of things he recognizes that you know the Raptors are a very global team and as we might talk about they have players from everywhere right now and and I think it's just that they're not afraid to kind of go outside of the box um, like a lot of these teams are there's always been kind of a bias against European players in the NBA and with American board players you kind of know what you're going to get more or less and Masai and the Raptors they are not afraid to bring international players into the organization because they want to be different. They want to set a new precedent and they, they kind of see that as a, a competitive advantage, right? Where maybe not everyone is looking in the places they're looking and they, they see that some of these leagues outside of the NCAA, maybe where kind of every scout is looking, they can mine talent and, and bring to Toronto. So yeah, in terms of a global city, I think he has big ideas and big goals. And and even when he re-signed with the Raptors, he made it pretty clear that he was only going to do so if he had the backing from MLSE to do these projects that kind of went beyond basketball. And he has another company uh, about I Am Humanity, I think it's called, where, yeah, where he had a big art installation outside Union Station recently. And... I think there's so many different places it could go, whether it's a WNBA team in Toronto, stuff like that. Um, I, I think he just, he sees a lot of potential here. Yeah. In the article, you also mention uh, how he's trying to fight back against the sort of shut up and dribble rhetoric that so many people are quick to jump to when it, when it comes to athletes. And I think that's, that's another really important thing that Masai is, is doing and this team is doing, you know, you know, we're able to encourage people to speak their minds and, and uh, be more than just athletes. Yeah, I think so for certain players who are politically inclined. Um, definitely, if you come to the Toronto Raptors, you know that you're going to have that platform as much as you want it. And, and you're going to be encouraged to speak out in and not just speak out, but also they're going to help you, whether it's giving you resources or just putting you in touch with the right people to do your own thing and to help give back in ways that you want. And, you know, think about Fred Van Vliet, who, who launched his own scholarship at UFT earlier this season for marginalized kid. 
um, who will get not just tuition and board paid for him, but also mentorship from Fred Van Vliet. So yeah, I, I definitely think that Masai and, and the whole culture of the organization encourages all of their players to set up their own organization. Pascal has his own organization uh, to give back. And, and definitely when they were in the NBA bubble, the Raptors were definitely at the forefront of those conversations um, that were happening then. And I think that was a good reminder for all of sports fans that like none of this stuff exists inside a vacuum. It's all tied to politics, you know, something we don't have to get into, but like what's happening in Russia right now is also like sport is so intrinsically tied into Russian politics and money. There's so much money that they put into their sports for reasons that are very murky. And it, I think the, the, covid and the bubble and all of that stuff made it very clear that like sport is politics sport is business you can't separate the two and i think the raptors don't try to separate the two they kind of buy into that that's awesome yeah i mean as university of toronto students uh, i think we were all proud to hear that fred van vliet was starting this scholarship for black and indigenous uh indigenous students so that's that's an amazing thing Let's move on uh, to something that you're writing about now. Uh, very exciting, very interesting. Um, you're writing now about the rise of women's basketball in Canada. Um, could you tell us about its comparisons to men's basketball in Canada? Uh, what do we have with regards to the support of the fan base? And uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about um, something you mentioned earlier, which is uh, a really, the really exciting prospect of a, a WNBA team in Toronto. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, with with women's basketball in Canada, it's it's definitely similar to the men's game in, in terms of we are in a golden age for both. There's more, you know, players in the NCAA from Canada than there ever have been. There's more players in top European clubs and. Obviously, in the NBA, there's a record number of Canadians, 24, I think, right now. The WNBA is only like three Canadians right now playing there. So it's different, and I'll get into some reasons why. But there's there's definitely growth of grassroots level in the women's game. You know, there was recently created like the OSBA, which is basically, excuse me, basically a prep circuit where the best talent um, from really all of Canada come to Ontario and play for these prep teams and have everything, whether it's high school, where they live, where they train, everything within the same, you know, campus. And, and in the past, it just, it's, it was public schools really. And then AAU programs aside, and it's the prep circuit has definitely helped not only develop these women, but also, showcase them and, and help them get scouted um the other thing i think that's different with men and women because the men also have the prep stuff um is like canada basketball for the men it's definitely a big aspiration for them to play for the senior team and to one day go to the olympics and even to play for the provincial teams but for the women because there's so there's so many less opportunities to develop there's so many there's so fewer resources and organizations backing them Canada basketball is, is kind of everything in terms of almost all of the women that you will see in the WNBA or high level of the NCAA they've gone through the ranks of Canada basketball first at the provincial level then at the youth level of Canada and then finally for the senior team and in, in the case of the very best ones so 
that program for women is huge, not just in terms of scouting them and figuring out who are the best, but also in terms of developing them for sure. So with the WNBA, a big difference also with the men and the women is that, you know, when when you look at men coming out of Canada, whether it's at the high school or, or whatever level it is where you have to decide like, all right, am I going to put all of my everything into this basketball hat or am I going to kind of diversify and and still you know try to be a doctor on the side whatever it is on the men's side it's very easy to say like I want to be in the NBA like that's such a sexy league you're paid millions of dollars you fly private you know the NBA is just it's grown so much to where like realistically it is like it's one of the best sports leagues in the world and for Canadian men not only do they have you know players like from the Steve Nash's before to now you know obviously the Raptors as well but to now SGA Jamal Murray those type of guys they can look up to those guys and say like they did it for the women not only is there fewer women in the WNBA so it's harder like there is Kia Nurse but that's the name everyone mentions because really there's only one Kia Nurse there's not a whole lot of them who've made it from here to there the other thing is that the WNBA just doesn't have the same like appeal to women in that you don't make a great living in the WNBA. You can get drafted and be cut in the same week. You can get drafted in the first round of the WNBA and be cut in the same week because there's so few opportunities. There's only like 12 teams. So that's like a huge difference when it comes to like a lot of women will say like, I don't want to put all my eggs in this basket because what if I don't make it to the very best of the WNBA? Like, And also to them, like just playing pro basketball overseas or playing for the Canadian national team. Often I've talked to women and those goals are like just at the exact same level or higher than making it to the WNBA. So I think that's like a huge problem that the WNBA has just in terms of the way they treat some of their athletes. And also it's, it's just, yeah, it's, it's a problem for Canadian women because they don't have the same type of role models that the men have. Uh, do you think uh, that's a lack of investment or uh, just a lack of will for, for, for teams or owners to, to uh, expand and have potentially more teams, which would obviously uh, increase the, amount, the number of opportunities? Yeah, I mean, the good news is that it is growing, like definitely viewership of the WNBA is taking off. And I think it's only a matter of time before expansion comes. But yeah, it's definitely a lack of investment and it's a lack of corporate partnership. It's a lack of like seeing the long-term vision um, that that these teams can have and supporting them because it is a great product. Like anyone who watches it knows that. Um, but I, w- I would say it is definitely a lack of investment and it, it doesn't start at the WNBA for women. It starts like at high school where they're fighting the boys team for gym time. And they're always the ones who have second choice for gym time. Right. It, it starts like from a very young age where these women have to fight these uphill battles um, that that becomes very clear. And, and I think like the WNBA as, as obviously like as cool as it is and as nice as it is, is it's still not the NBA in terms of like, if I make it to this league, all my problems, uh, at least like financially are solved. It doesn't have that same ring to it. So I guess this is maybe coming full circle because uh, Masai 
did talk about um, encouraging women and girls to play basketball and uh, hoping that that's more feasible for them. Um, so could you talk more about Masai Ujiri and what you think is next for him and how he's influenced the game here in Toronto and worldwide? I think continuing to, yeah, make the Raptors more of a global team, just based on the way they're playing right now and the identity that they've built, like they really have shied away. They've zagged when the rest of the league have zigged and they're really building a different type of team. And one of the characteristics of that team is it's extremely athletic. So I think some of that comes from the international nature of it. Um, But in terms of where he's going to go next, like, yeah, I think I think it's a lot of off court stuff that is obviously hard to predict. But Giants of Africa, for example, today launched five grants for past campers. So I I don't know. He's he's always working. He's always figuring out new ways to help people, especially in in Africa. And you know they they committed to a hundred new courts. Ten of those have been built, so still ninety to go. And and they're going to kind of do that slowly. It's a huge undertaking. I definitely think like the possibility of a WNBA team coming to Toronto is a real one. I think if it happens, then Masai and, and MLSE will be strong voices to make it happen. Like that's, that's definitely fits right up with everything he's talked about in terms of growing the game on the women's side and, and providing equal opportunities for men and women. So yeah, that wouldn't surprise me, but I think it, it's it's hard to kind of predict with Masai. It's you got to just wait and see. He kind of works in silence, and then, yeah. Excellent. That's what we love about him. He's always got something up his sleeve. That's that's awesome. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Warren, and uh, really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you guys for having wow. me. I appreciate it. It was good. Once again, that was Oren Weisfeld. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. Many thanks to our guests for joining us today to discuss the politics of basketball. Today's show was produced by Tom Chan, Michael Kalaparambeth, and Abdullah Nakvi. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at BYOND underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.